0: Well, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly a podcast, where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host Eric Fisher, U.S. editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. And you know, getting into mid-September here, pushing towards late September, it's one of those great times of the year. Here, we're uh, almost to another of here in the United States the sports equinox. We're just a few weeks away from that.
1: Absolutely. With all of the uh, baseball pennant races, with the NFL, with NHL and NBA about to get started. So uh, lots of exciting things happening. And of course, off the field,
0: no shortage
1: of uh, things happening
0: across the industry. We've got a lot to unpack this week. A big deal with One Team Partners, the uh, commercial licensing agency uh, created by a series of players associations uh, here in the United States. A very interesting deal between the National Football League and the German Football League more new money coming into sports investment and and team uh, sales but first we're going to have a conversation with Jim O'Connell with Athletes First Partners this is one of the uh, faster growing agencies here in the United States does a lot of work with a number of interesting entities we're going to have a conversation with Jim first and then Chris and I'll be back on the other side to break down the news of the week stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Jim O'Connell, president of Athletes First Partners. The New York-based and Dentsu-affiliated entity has become one of the largest and most prominent agencies across the sports and entertainment landscape, operating a sports marketing and commercial business that works with many top-tier entities, such as Fanatics and the National Basketball Players Association, among many others. Most recently, Athletes First Partners completed an agreement to market the jersey patch rights from the National Hockey League's Edmonton Oilers. Athletes First Partners originated in 2018 as an expansion of sister company Athletes First, the largest National Football League talent representation agency in the United States. O'Connell joined Athletes First Partners in 2018 as that enlarged vision was unfolding and his appointment followed senior level roles with NASCAR where he was chief sales officer as well as Viacom and the NFL and at the NFL he played a key role in building the league's European profile. In his current role he has been outspoken on the need for agencies to reinvent their value in the age of COVID-19. Jim welcome to the program. Great to be here, Eric. Thank you for
2: that lovely introduction.
0: So I mentioned your, uh, your prior career stops. You were at a lot of big places and, and doing big things. And maybe a good place to start here is sort of your career journey and sort of what attracted you to this particular opportunity with Athletes First Partners.
2: Sure. Well, I, I thought you did a great intro, Eric. I, I could just sit here and listen to that all afternoon. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I started my career as an investment banker, which three years out of, out of my undergrad at Georgetown and I went into banking not quite sure what I wanted to do. And it became fairly clear to me that while being a banker was great training ground, get a great financial background, especially for a government major from Georgetown, it certainly wasn't gonna be the place where I would make a career. So I went back to business school, went down to Duke and got my MBA and knew I wanted to get into kind of the marketing, sales, business development world. Ended up taking a job at Lay as a associate brand manager working on Ruffles and Lay's potato chips. Make a long story short, got introduced to the people at the NFL. I was their client for a year when we sponsored the Michael Jackson Super Bowl halftime show way back in the day. And the people at the NFL took a liking to me and said, hey, we'd love you to come over and do what you're doing now, but on the NFL side, go out to corporate America, teach them how leagues and properties like the NFL, brands can use their assets to help sell more product, get brand awareness, et cetera. And that started me in the world of sports marketing. And fortunately, I was able to run across Chris Russo at the NFL. And, you know, good things happen from that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But Jim, as as you kind of now move forward to today and uh, are, are running this Athletes First Partners business, how much of it in terms of a business mix is working with properties to help them find sponsors versus working with sponsors and brands and helping them maximize what they're doing in the, uh, you know, in the sports space?
2: Well, Chris, it's a little bit of both. You know, Our clients are the properties that hire us to go out and find sponsors. You know, given mine and my team's long history with brands across the country, and you know, we have all deep relationships with those companies and with those brand decision makers. So properties hires us to go out and find the right brand fit. So we'll go out, we'll pitch the assets that we have to sell, then talk to the brand and come up with creative ways that the assets of the property we're selling for can help solve the marketing challenge for the brand that we're engaging.
0: And as you're doing that, there's obviously a very robust competitive landscape, a lot of different agencies and entities out there doing various things. How how do you sort of view yourself within that competitive landscape and who are your key competitors?
2: Yeah, Eric, I think everyone is a competitor out there. There are a lot of great people out there and a lot of great agencies and individuals doing their own thing you know i think it, i think when people look for agencies they want to hire they'll look for a few key attributes is they look for folks with a deep rolodex and brand contacts so they can go out and talk to people in america and i'd like to think that between my contacts and the team that works for me you know we can reach almost every brand decision maker in the country so i think that's very important i think it's important to be creative understand how to solve problems And most importantly, Eric, I think it's important to make sure that you understand how the assets of the property you're selling can help that brand and kind of match up the best assets with the best brands. And sometimes it's a square peg in a round hole and that's not the deal you want to do. Sometimes you have to make the square peg fit into the round hole with some creative solutions. And sometimes it's much more natural fit, but you kind of have to understand the difference and match up the appropriate properties with the appropriate brands. Jim, as you compete
1: out in the marketplace, what kind of assistance do you get from the sister company, Athletes First, from the Dentsu relationship? How does all of that kind of come together in the way you
2: bring yourself to market? Yeah, well, I think from the Dentsu point of view, that's one of our key selling points, Chris, is that, you know, Dentsu has 140 offices across the world and, you know, people like that international reach that we can bring through Dentsu being one of our partners. And Athletes First being our sister company, listen, they're the number one football agency in the country. Phenomenal people, phenomenal uh, reputation. So, you know, if you're judged by the company you keep, I think that helps us out in the marketplace, understanding that we're part of the number one football agency. I mentioned at the
0: outset your new relationship with the Edmonton Oilers, and this is a very fascinating space, obviously a you know new and emerging uh, sponsorship app inventory within the NHL. There's been a handful of teams that have done this so far. And now you're working with an interesting team that it's not the largest market, but one with a great legacy of success. And, you know, by most accounts, two of the five best players in the league right now. And curious as to how you're beginning that process and what that sales process for the Oilers is going to look like.
2: Yeah, it's great. And it's a phenomenal client to have. You know, when, when you're an agency, you really look for two things, correct? One is you look for great assets to sell, and you look for great clients. And fortunately, we had that with the Edmonton Oilers. It's a, a phenomenal asset to sell. You know, there are a few assets out there that can connect you with a brand like the Oilers that such a rich stored history, five Stanley Cups, great current success on the ice. They went to the Western Finals last year, and they're picked to be one of the favorites for this year. Great social engagement. They're the number one socially engaged team in the NHL rabid fan base, about 14 million fans across North America, nine and a half million in the US alone. So it's a phenomenal asset to sell. And, and the Oilers are a wonderful organization. They, we came, we met with them, they hired us. Abe Hajar and his crew have been phenomenal to work with, understanding who we are, understanding what we can bring and being very receptive to our ideas. And we think we're gonna have a lot of success in the marketplace.
1: Speaking of those ideas, and I know you're not going to share necessarily your, your target list with us, but what kinds of categories do you think are going to be the most likely categories of focus? And maybe a follow-up question to that, are some of these emerging categories like crypto and betting on the table for, for this type of opportunity?
2: Yeah, you know, Chris, I think in reverse order, I, I, I think there's a great opportunity for a challenger brand or challenger category, et cetera, to make a big splash with the Oilers patch. So I think that could very well be someone that we that we partner with. And I think a lot of the traditional categories make sense as well. You know, I think anyone that wants to be uh, closely associated with a brand like the Oilers will look at this opportunity. And to your point, it could be anyone across a broad spectrum of categories that we're looking at. And most of all, Chris, you're right, I, I can't give you all my secrets. I mean, <laughs> as much as I like you too, I just can't say
0: Broadly speaking, as you go through this process and your other client work here, there's certainly in the, in the broader uh, economy and the broader society a lot of turbulence and worries about inflation and so forth. How much of that is sort of creeping into what you're doing on a day to day level in terms of economic worries, inflation worries, and so forth?
2: Well, you know, Eric, it's always a concern, and I think um, I think it's more more of a concern for agencies that are selling assets that that aren't as attractive. You know, I think as, as brands have budgets which get a little tighter, they look for the best fit and they look for the most strategic programs and opportunities that come along. So I think the, the agencies that have the best assets, that have the best ideas are, will continue to do well. I think the ones that don't necessarily have the best assets to sell, the most compelling programs to put together will struggle a little bit more. And that's okay. You know, that shows that, you know, it's a capitalistic society and the best ideas and the best assets win. But it's it's a challenge. Listen, as as I like to say, everybody has a boss. And our charge when we go talk to companies is to make sure that we're giving them the, the proper programming, the proper uh, platform to go to their boss and look smart and say this makes a lot of sense for this brand.
1: Jim Eric and I have been covering on the podcast over the last year, really the tremendous growth and momentum in women's sports in terms of you know NWSL, PHF, WNBA, and others it's not only valuations that have been growing, it's also, it appears, sponsor and marketer support of women's sports. How has that played into your strategy and your business, if
2: at all? Yeah, it has been a big growth area. In fact, you know one of the people we represent directly is Cheryl Swoops, the WNBA Hall of Famer, who's phenomenal, and we've done a lot of deals for her. And we've seen a lot of interest in her. And, you know, Chris, I think we're getting to the point where people aren't thinking about it as a is an asset with men or an asset with women. It's just, it's a really good asset. And I think people are recognizing there are a lot of great assets in the women's sports world.
0: Similar question in terms of emerging properties. The last couple of years on a sort of perhaps parallel path here, uh, real expansion of some of these newer and and challenger entities. And I'm speaking of people like overtime, fan-controlled football, now fan-controlled sports and entertainment, uh, premier lacrosse league and so forth. How are you sort of... um, viewing that emerging space and all of these new entities beyond the big four, big five in college?
2: Well, Eric has said, listen, everybody's a competitor out there. Everybody's fighting for the brand dollars and the, the same budgets that marketers have out there. And a lot of these challenger brands are coming up with great creative assets. And you know, some of those properties that you mentioned, the investment is not as great as some of the other ones out there. So in some ways, there's an advantage to get in if you don't require that much of an investment. The challenge, obviously, for the, a lot of those challenger brands is they don't have a long history. You know, the old joke used to be, you know, no media buyer would get fired for buying a spot on Friends or buying for the Super Bowl. You know, nobody gets fired for buying the NBA or the, or the NFL, for sure. You know, you have to, you have to build a, a little bit of a stronger case for a challenger brand. It can make sense, but you got to make sure you have a good story. Going back to the adage, which I said before, everybody has a boss.
1: Jim, for the next year, as you think about your priorities, obviously you want to do a great job on behalf of your clients like the Oilers, but maybe more strategically, are there one or two other key strategic initiatives that you're focused on as you think about building your business overall?
2: Yeah, Chris, it's a really good question. Listen, uh, you know we started with our, our biggest client and we still have the NBPA, the, the Players Association. We do a lot of work for them. It's a great brand, a great asset to go out to Corporate America. We also have a client, the, NBA, the NBRPA, the Retired Players Association. It's about 1,000 men and women strong from the NBA, WNBA, and actually Harlem Globetrotters. So for a while, we were a basketball-focused agency, not necessarily by design, but that's who we were. As Eric mentioned before, we have other clients, Fanatics. We work with Team USA. We just signed six flags in addition to the Edmonton Zoilers. So we're really looking Chris more for where the great opportunities are than necessarily a category or a a, a silo to, to play in. And we like, you know, we're small agencies, so we get to pick our partners selectively. And, um, you know, we want to work with good people with good assets. So far, we've been able to do that.
0: And following on that notion, there's, of course, been a great deal of consolidation in the agency space over the last year or two, even sort of before COVID and certainly coming through and out of, Potentially COVID here, a lot of that consolidation. Do you feel the need to sort of be playing in that space? And sort of you've obviously got the Densu relationship, but as you pursue the, this greater mission, do you get a sense that it's time to step on the accelerator with some greater scale through potential MA
2: activity? Listen, that's always a possibility or for sure. You know, we're pretty happy where we are right now, having our strategic partners with Densu and with Athletes First. There's always opportunities, and if somebody wants to purchase us and give us more scale, more investment, more infrastructure, that's great. But we think we're in a pretty good space right now, but, you know, never say never and keep your ears and eyes open.
0: Well, we're going to be continuing to track all the developments across uh, Athletes First and certainly the Oilers patch uh, efforts. That's going to be uh, across all the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Jim O'Connell from Athletes First Partners for spending this
2: time with us. Eric, Chris, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Great podcast and continued success. Thank you.
0: And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Jim O'Connell again from Athletes First Partners for spending that time with us. And turning our attention now to the news of the week here, a number of big deals in the space here, and one that we've been anticipating for a while here to uh, start off here, One Team uh, Partners. This is the uh, commercial licensing agency created by a number of the major players associations here in the United States. Redbird Capital Partners, uh, obviously no stranger to this podcast or most anywhere else involved in a whole bunch of things across the space. They were one of the founding partners of this entity. And, You know, it's been expected for some months that they were going to sell their interest in one team and focus on some other uh, ventures, uh, some of which, again, we've talked about in recent weeks, uh, AC Milan being one of them. But uh, they've sold their interest. There was a series of new investors coming in, but really kind of a successful outcome for all uh, involved here. The uh, the company was valued at $1.9 billion, part of this transaction, about six times the level of when this started with Redbird and the MLB Players Association, the NFL Players Association at the time in 2019. Since then, a number of other unions have come in as part of this and part of that greater mission. There's a group of uh, new investors that have come in to take on uh, that former Redbird equity led by HPS Investment here. But again, this is one of those things where all the relevant parties saw a big unexploited commercial opportunity here, and that continues to bear itself out.
1: This was definitely a big win for Redbird and for its partners you have to give them credit for conceiving this and putting it together. Also, there may have been a little bit of luck involved with the trading card business exploding over the last couple of years, the emergence of NFTs, the emergence of some new categories which were really relevant to these player rights. But again, a big win. And over a relatively short period of time, typically, these private equity deals are four, five, six, seven years before you, you flip them. And this was done in, in about three years so, again, a, a big win and also a pretty short time frame.
0: Yeah, your your point about the timetable is very well taken here. And, you know, again, I think it's just a sort of a fundamental rethink on what this athlete licensing is all about. And traditionally, really for decades, it's been, you know, a lot of the traditional things, trading cards and jerseys and things of that sort. And, you know, the original premise of this whole notion around one team partners was to sort of completely reconceive the notion of what athlete licensing is all about and yes there have been some very favorable trends and and tailwinds to move this along here but you know sort of the comment that i sort of come back to and in conversations that i've had with over the the months and years here with tony clark about this whole licensing effort is that they you know through this venture, they've sort of moved to the big boy table and they can sort of talk with licensing partners and brands and so forth in a completely different way now.
1: Yeah, it's 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 more than, as you're suggesting, it's more than just the different kinds of businesses you can be involved in. It's now the players are equity holders. They're creating enterprise value as opposed to simply licensing and having some fees come in there's a more strategic long-term approach here and they're capturing more of the value for themselves as opposed to all of that value accruing to either team owners or some of these licensees now the players are really capturing that and i think that's what is in part revolutionary about what one team did and again very good first foray for for those players associations
0: yeah and, and there's a really important collateral effect here that you sort of look over the period of uh, one team partners to date and then sort of parallel to that, what's been happening in the collective bargaining space with a number of these entities here. you know the MLBPA specifically just was able to sort of uh, you know withstand a uh, you know pretty brutal lockout without breaking, got a you know pretty uh, important new uh, labor deal with major League Baseball with some important improvements there. They've just now minor uh, unionized the minor leaguers. You know, NWSL, they've got a new labor deal, the U.S. Women's National Team in soccer. They've got some important labor gains. And these things are not disconnected. In fact, quite the contrary that, you know, as they've done these vehicles to get bigger commercial power here, it's really not a stretch to look at how that sort of now colored uh, the entire collective bargaining negotiations. And we're talking about economic pies in completely different ways now.
1: We are. And in fact, we had Ahmad Nasser on a couple of weeks ago, who is now bringing this model or some version of this model, I guess, to tennis. So again, I think we see players and athletes, whether it's at the pro level or even at the college level with NIL, having more of their uh, uh, opportunities to, to leverage their rights, leverage their opportunities in cash payments and equity in other vehicles. I would say about Redbird and, and this decision to sell, I do wonder at some level whether part of that was driven by the fact that they are getting more involved in things like Fenway, like AC Milan. it's hard to be on both sides of the table. It's hard to own businesses where right. you're owning teams. And then at the same time, owning businesses that are player driven and player focused. So part of the rationale, in addition to the returns, may have been, you know, again, it's hard to be on all sides of that table, depending upon, uh, you know, whose interest you're, you're you're fighting for.
0: I think that's a great point. And conceptually, that sort of, you know, resembles, you know, some of the choices that Michael Rubin and Fanatics have had to make that amid all the opportunities put in front of them, they've had to pick some specific lanes and get out of some things like team ownership to in service of other opportunities.
1: But but you know but I think you know Redbird again got to give them credit because this one team model was in some ways an extension of what they or what at least Jerry had originally done with the Yes Network with NFL on location now with these players associations where you're taking rights and and, and revenue streams that lived within a league or lived within a collection of players and you're turning them into a private equity vehicle. And with more and more private equity funds getting into the sports space, you're now creating tremendous value that can ultimately be sold to somebody else down the line. So, again, give them credit for pioneering this and putting together a difficult deal and and making it work.
0: So what we'll be continuing to watch now going forward is how one team articulates itself of course is broadly speaking under this new structure and new cap table and so forth but do the individual unions and the individual partners do they take a little bit more of a advanced role in this situation with red bird out uh do they go to market slightly differently is the messaging slightly different there's again just um you know, you're not talking about a necessarily a a fundamental rethink or blowing up the model that we've been talking about here. But again, there's, you know, a, an inflection point here where they could be sort of, again, presenting themselves a little bit differently going forward. And I'm going to be interested to see if those changes do occur.
1: Yeah, I think Redbird was such a a strong architect of this with them now fading out of the picture. I think the players associations themselves, I think, will probably take a stronger role going forward.
0: So much more to come on that front here. But. uh Turning our attention now to the National Football League, of, of course, we've been talking a, a lot over the last year in particular about their international plans. They late last year did a series of uh, uh, team based rights where they, uh certain teams can go into certain international territories and and leverage them as they would their home domestic markets. Uh, we've got these big plans to play in a number of international countries over the course of this now started 2022 season and beyond and foremost, uh, part of that, perhaps, uh, is uh, the beginning of a four year sequence of games in Germany. And there's been phenomenal ticket uh, demand for these upcoming games in Germany here. And to advance the efforts, what the NFL has now done is formalize the relationship with the uh, German Football League, uh, known as the DFL, and there was already sort of a loose collaboration going on where the the games in Germany were already going to be played in DFL stadiums, you know, back in the, the Super Bowl in February when they were announcing a bunch of this stuff. You know, there were representatives from Bayern Munich and, and other related entities that were there sort of supporting what the NFL uh, was announcing and doing. But now they've taken this relationship to a whole other level and there's going to be a series of collaborations on Content on business, on production, and so forth. And and you know, a very interesting acknowledgement here that on the NFL that they can't do it alone. They shouldn't do it alone in terms of exploiting this key international territory. And by working with the DFL, there could be a situation here to make one plus one equal three.
1: Yeah, I think this is an important symbolic announcement, and we'll see how much actually gets done in the specifics in terms of some of those things you mentioned, Eric, like uh, marketing and and production, etc. But clearly, the DFL has incredible resources in Germany. The NFL has made an important commitment to that country. They're bringing, obviously, the biggest star there, Tom Brady, for the game on November 13th in, in Munich. They've got games scheduled over this four-year period so this is a big international initiative for the NFL and to be able to partner with the DFL which is the premier sports entity in Germany and and maybe they've got some of it baked and some of it they're going to be baking in terms of the specifics of this but I think that's a, a, a great statement and presents some really exciting opportunities
0: and if this works, you start to sort of wonder about whether some of the major the other major north american leagues as they do more and more of these international efforts and certainly improvement in the public health conditions have enabled a lot of this and all of the you know baseball and hockey and the nba and so forth they've all got international games lined up and in an increasing sequence of them but as this goes along if this deal really works t- as the intended parties want it to, do you end up seeing, you know, baseball working with the Premier League on some formalistic level or, you know, I'm just throwing out names here, but the NBA working with Serie A or something of that sort here where, uh, again, there's there's not a competitive element here, but in fact, a, a robust collaborative one where there could be some meaningful benefit for all parties here.
1: I think you will see that, Eric, and, and all of these leagues are becoming more global Uh, In in so many respects, what I am curious about is not only what benefits the NFL gets in Germany, but what the DFL might get in the U.S. because that was also part of the discussion was that there may be opportunities for the NFL to help the the DFL here in the United States. Clearly, it's an incredibly popular league, but I would say in the U.S., the, the English Premier League probably has got A bit more traction, a bit more visibility. And so whether the DFL can leverage the NFL strength in the U.S. and and enhance its position is something that will be also interesting to see and, and to see how that actually gets executed.
0: Well, and this is where, again, some other people may be coming to the table here, because of course, the, the obvious answer to your question is you start to think about friendlies being played in NFL stadiums and a number of those international matches have already drawn big numbers. But then do you take it to another level and actually do regular season Bundesliga games in NFL stadiums? I don't see why not. And then you sort of think about the domestic rights for the, uh, the Bundesliga and what ESPN and Disney have you know, big NFL partner, you know, very close NFL partner. And, you know, there's some very interesting three-way collaborations that could be conceived here.
1: Yeah. And it could be cross promotion, cross marketing, using databases, selling joint packages. I mean, there's all those kinds of things with complementary products that that could be conceived of. And again, I think this is the first step. And it, again, all the details don't appear to have been, you know, they're, they're not all worked out necessarily, but I think it's, it really has a lot of potential.
0: Yeah. And again, you made made a great point at the outset here, moving this from a press release announcement to a meaningful business development, that's going to be the thing to watch.
1: Yeah. And I again, I think that more than anything, I, I think the NFL is staking a lot of its international game plan around now Germany being the next big success. And there are a lot of reasons that it should be. There's a fandom there, a fan base there that dates back even to the NFL Europe, which ultimately had five out of six teams playing in Germany. But now this is the big time. This is bringing Tom Brady. This is bringing your best product. And I think the league wants to do everything it can to ensure the success and and, and even over deliver, you know, what they have laid out.
0: So much more to come on that front, and certainly as we approach this uh, first game in Germany coming up in November with the Buccaneers here. But uh, turning our attention actually back to uh, uh, the world of team sales and finance and so forth here, and some of the things we alluded to in the first topic, You know, we had another pretty big uh, announcement in the space here in recent days where Aries Capital, a uh, U.S. investment firm, they announced that they have raised $3.7 billion, more than twice their original target, to go go out and seek sports and entertainment opportunities, uh, including but certainly not limited to team sales. And we've certainly talked at length about the Arctoses of the world and so forth. And Aries themselves, they've already got pieces of a number of entities, including Major League Baseball, San Diego Padres, Inter-Miami of the MLS, and so forth here. But a big chunk of money going out there. And as we talk about, it's not just the size of the money, but who's involved. They've put together a very robust advisory board that includes some Pretty big, bold-faced names: John Skipper, Mia Hamm, Grant Hill, former MLB star Mark Teixeira, among others. Even Lionel Richie. It's a, you know, and what we do here, the name Lionel Richie, uh, the pop star. That name doesn't come up in our world very much, but uh, you know, hello, we've got uh, Lionel Richie. Uh, you know, uh, uh, part of this effort as well here. But broadly speaking, you know, we've got a big chunk of money out there, and y- you can certainly. Uh, Rest assured that a number of entities were, uh, you know, paying very close attention to that piece of news that, you know, there's uh, money coming into the market here in short order.
1: And and when money comes into the market, that's good news for people who are selling things, whether they're selling, you know, LP stakes of teams or other businesses around the sports space. And what we've seen over the last few years has really been an unbelievable growth in sports dedicated funds. We've got Arctos, we've got Dial. Don Cornwall has uh, announced that uh, or it has been announced that Don is going to be doing a, a fund. We've seen companies like Sixth Street, which aren't necessarily yep. totally sports focused, but have really made huge investments in the sports space, CVC, so, you know, 7 or 8 years ago when Bruin raised its first fund, it was kind of like that was breakthrough. You know, there were yep. one-off deals that were being done by Providence and others, but now this is really a category that these major institutional equity firms are doubling down on. And it's again great news for people in the sports space who have things to sell or who want to uh, to curry uh, investment into those opportunities.
0: Yeah, and and part of this, I think, it's important to note is on the team side and the league side specifically that, and as you well know, obviously, Chris, from being at the the league, uh, there historically was a a real reservation upon these kinds of structures, and that you weren't going to have the kind of hands-on management and community involvement and so forth to make this work. And you know what. You've got valuation issues that have sort of helped this along. But, you know, a lot of the governance issues have been sort of cleaned up in, in the sense that there is very clear alliance and, you know, these respective teams and leagues that you're going to have managing partners who have a very specific set of obligations. And if they bring in more passive from an operating standpoint, more passive financial partners, that's OK, because the operating and governance requirements have been clearly spelled out with whom they lie and, and where they lie.
1: Yeah, there, there's really two parts to that, Eric. Number one is the leagues you rightly point out, or many of the leagues, not the NFL per se, but uh, the NBA, NHL, MLB now allow some level of private equity investment, and they've created these guidelines and rules, as you suggest. So they have facilitated more of this money being raised. At the same time, I think private equity has taken a different look at these opportunities than maybe they did in the past. In the past, they looked at, boy, those are, you know, valuations are crazy. These are not trading on EBITDA multiples. There were issues that private equity, you know, it's hard to, hard to sell these LP stakes. Now I think it's become part of the mix of things that they look at, and there's a sense there's more liquidity that you can buy some of these stakes and then maybe if you're, uh, you know, Aries, maybe you buy some stakes and maybe seven years later you sell them to Arctos or Dial or somebody else. So I, I do think there's more of a market in this that has made it uh, more interesting for, for private equity to get involved.
0: Yeah. And even on a, sort of helping on an individual level where, you know, maybe this, you know, a private equity firm such as this can come in, but then you, some, of that, some of those pieces may go to individuals because the other sort of big trend line on this is that you've got majority owners who have sort of come in in many instances, first as a minority owner and sort of use that to build relationships, build acumen, build trust and so forth. And so when it's time, for a particular team to have a new majority owner, they're coming in from within and you don't have any of these sort of uh, turbulence issues because it's a known quantity that the league and the other owners and so forth already feel comfortable with.
1: Yeah, that is important, Eric, because these leagues still reputationally want to make sure they have the right kind of people r- running them and owning them and managing them. I think that had been some of the trepidation of, you know, several years ago, there had been situations where there might've been a hundred you know, LP owners of a team or, you know, all right. kinds of small mom and pop owners. And and the teams and the, and the leagues were getting concerned about that reputationally. So now I think there's a real vetting process around some of these institutional equity parties. But at the end of the day, as you pointed out, the teams are still being run by individuals who are responsible for the behavior of the teams and, and what these teams do. And that's that's still important to the leagues.
0: And so then looking forward, it's going to be very interesting to see where they place their bet, because you can sort of go league by league, team by team. And there are a lot of older owners, succession issues and the like, or at least, again, having some of these trial situations where you sort of bring on a partner to sort of help with the recapitalization and sort of buy a little time to sort of figure out a, a you know new majority sale or so forth here. But again, a lot of teams and a lot of leagues and a lot of markets who are you've got You know, majority owners right now sort of getting to the end of their life, the end of their career. And it's time to think about some succession issues.
1: Absolutely. And we also have not just the U.S., but you have Europe where we've seen private equity firms like Redbird buy AC Milan. We've seen other deals along those lines. And in Europe, there has been more of a history and tradition of, of private equity ownership, even some public ownership. And so there are a lot of targets out there, which is, again, why I think you're seeing so much money being lined up. They're not concerned that Arctos is out there buying all these stakes. They seem to think, uh, in the case of Aries and others, there's plenty of inventory out there. So we'll see, you know, see what that ultimately looks like in terms of the portfolios.
0: Yeah, and, and that's a great point about the uh, the European landscape because, again, the inventory is even so much greater there because I, I think what part of the playbook is that, yes, yeah, some of your top of the funnel and people are looking to come in and buy Premier League clubs or so forth. But there's also a pretty significant play, whether it be the Premier League or the Italians or Germans or what have you, coming in with a second or third division at a much lower number and then try to raise it up through promotion into the top tier that – just because you're, in fact, quite the opposite, just, you know, you buy a third or second tier club now, that's not where it's going to be forever. And again, part of the contemplation is then, you know, organic growth after coming in at that lower number.
1: That's right. And again, the one thing I would say is a little bit different, and I'm going to overgeneralize here, but I'd say there are situations in Europe where the teams are great brands, but are losing a lot of money. Typically right. in the NFL and MLB, NBA, they're not losing a ton of money. I mean, it's a rare team now these days that actually loses money. And so the question will be, can private equity not only stomach the valuations, but stomach some of the losses that occur in, in some European teams when you haven't fully optimized the business, when you don't have the right management team, can they come in and, and be comfortable doing that? Uh, certainly it's happened on, on a couple of occasions, but that's, that's a little bit of the barrier in Europe.
0: Yes, although it's going to be interesting also to see whether that private equity money has a meaningful role in sort of shaping some of the still emerging financial fair play rules in Europe, because the issues that you rise with the losses and so forth is because generally speaking, you've not had a lot of the same economic guardrails that we have here in the North American leagues, particularly around the ones that have a salary cap. And there are very specific rules about what you can spend in a given year. That's really just still emerging on the European side and to the extent that um, that the private equity folks can maybe sort of help shape and define and advance that, it's going to be fascinating to see.
1: You know, when you start getting a critical mass of owners that actually really prim- primarily care about making money long term at least, Versus owners that might view this as a, a vanity play or a passion play. And if I lose a lot of money, but I'm the champion of the EPL, that's good with me because I've got, you know, once you get more and more people who are just focused on, on making money, then those kind of, uh, you know, guardrails start really being imposed.
0: Yep. Well, as we come to the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a bit of a quick look elsewhere in the space going forward and see what else is catching our eye. And Chris, I'll start with you.
1: Eric, there have been a number of uh, published reports in the last week that uh, Dr. Patrick Soon-Shiong may be looking at acquiring the LA Angels. Dr. Pat also owns a piece of the LA Lakers. He owns the LA Times, has a real strong presence there in that community and I think uh, could probably find some great ways of synergizing the various uh, assets in his portfolio if he's able to, to make this bid and, and if he's successful. So that's something that I'm certainly watching as that uh, angels process moves forward.
0: Yeah, and I think there's nothing but upside in that situation there. Obviously, the Dodgers kind of dominate the market and, you know, could very well be headed to another World Series this year. But, you know, the Artie Moreno era writ large of the Angels, he sort of came in was a very popular figure originally. But you, know, you sort of look at now the almost 20 years of the Moreno era, it really kind of has to be cast as a disappointment here that, you know, despite having now two of the five best players in the league with Trout and Otani, they they continue to lose on the field. I've had issues trying to get the, the stadium renovation across the finish line. There have been other sort of governance issues within the franchise itself here. And so, you know, I think there's a, a pretty big untapped opportunity for whether it be Dr. Pat or somebody else coming in to try to take that Angel franchise to another level.
1: Yeah. And again, you know, despite those challenges that you point out, Eric, it is a huge market there are huge opportunities there across media, across events, across all kinds of other ancillary pieces to build around that team that I do think the the outcome will be positive for the fan base as this process evolves. And quite possibly
0: a record number in terms of the valuation here and blowing the Met Cohen number out of the water.
1: Absolutely. I think there's a there's a really good chance of that. And then from my standpoint, uh
0: you know, not too far geographically away here. I'm sort of keeping my eye on the Phoenix Suns and and vis-a-vis the the fallout from some of the issues surrounding that. We've just had news that the the Suns owner, uh, Robert Sarver, uh, the league suspended him for a year, fined him $10 million maximum amount under the Constitution after a a league investigation found a a lot of racist and misogynistic uh, comments and behavior by Sarver. And there's been a lot of fallout here. There's a number of different levels here where you've got the player community, uh, you know, that so Adam Silver, the league commissioner, has worked so well with over the years. You know, those players are really upset with the silver right now because they sort of see a double standard that you know the punishment that could be levied upon a team employee or a player seems to be kind of different potentially from a from what's being levied upon Sarver. But then now you've got you know, other folks within the Sun's ownership, John Najafi, who we had here on the podcast last year, he's the second largest shareholder in the Suns. He is now publicly out saying that Sarver should be out and he should be resigning here. And so a lot of turbulence around this situation where there was an investigation, there were findings, allegations that were confirmed, a punishment was levied, and a lot of people are still very unhappy with the situation.
1: Yeah, regardless of of that outcome on that on that punishment, I I do wonder how that's going to affect that organization, both in terms of on the court and and how do the players react, and how does that team uh, attract future players from a business standpoint, what does it mean for sponsors for other you know suite holders? so I think there's a there's a lot of question marks now although the the punishment has been doled out and yes there's some uh, different points of view about it and and that will probably continue I do wonder whether it just creates a sense of, of limbo or challenge for the people running that team day to day that it's going to be very tough to deal with
0: and trying to get anything done here that you've already got uh, the mayor of Phoenix and city council members that are upset about the situation as well. So that's going to make it di- more difficult to do something like an, a, an arena project or bid for a league event that you need public sector and support. And then you reference the number of the other stakeholders, whether they be uh, premium seat holders or corporate sponsors or so forth. There could be all sorts of fallout from this.
1: Yeah. So it's it's. I think the, the headlines are far from over on this. And uh, this could still twist and turn. But I would say, in fairness, all of these situations are are different. And we had you know, the Sterling situation and the Jerry Richardson situation. On the one hand, you have the commanders and still and, unfolding. there So you have this. So, it, again, it's, it's hard to necessarily paint them all with one brush. They're 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 fact specific. But regardless, this is going to be a tough road here for the Suns and certainly that, that owner suite, you know, between John and, uh, and, and the rest of the owners is going to be a, a pretty interesting sight to see.
0: No doubt. No doubt. Well, much more to come on that front, but for now that's going to wrap up another episode of sport business finance weekly for Chris Russo. I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.